If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 4. We will soon be reading verses 9 through 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, in a pew close to you, somewhere near you, you should be able to find one of those black ESV Bibles. And if you need to borrow that, please do. And you can find Romans chapter 4, verse 9, on page 941 of that Bible. This week, I was reminded of one of my all-time favorite movies, Saving Private Ryan. It certainly is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, nor is it the kind of movie that you want to sit down and watch repeatedly all the time. But it is a really good movie. And there are many scenes that, that I remember and I love, but the, none of those scenes were the scenes that were brought to mind. I, I love the beachhead scene. The, the violence and the portrayal of war there is, is realistic and harrowing. I love the very kind of compassionate scene where the general reads the letter from Abraham Lincoln about and to the mom who lost her three sons. I even love the sort of unsettling scene where Corporal Upham can't finish and do the duty that he was been placed before and save the lives of his compatriots. Well, what stuck out to me this week was a small line that I almost always forget about, but it, it stuck out to me. I, I must have seen the movie many times before this line actually stuck out to me. There's a, a tough sort of stoic soldier who, at some point in time, breaks down. They, they had seen something or had talked about the Nazis. I can't really remember, and I didn't have time this week to rewatch the movie, but all of a sudden he, he kind of breaks down in, in, in being confronted by something German, something Nazi. And one of the other soldiers, who doesn't know him that well, asks what has brought about all this emotion in this guy. And the man who answers, I think, was supposed to be a Christian. And he says about this guy, oh, he's a son of Abraham. And I remember hearing that. Saving Private Ryan came out in 1998. I, I probably didn't watch it in 1998, maybe a year or so later. I remember hearing that as a young Christian and thinking, listen, I've read through Romans and I've read through Galatians and I don't understand why any Christian would refer to a Jewish person as a son of Abraham. It's, a, it's an odd designation for somebody who is like trying to, be, trying to be called out as different from that Christian. That Christian wasn't moved. The Christian didn't break down. Why did he break down? Well, he's, he's Jewish. He's a son of Abraham. Yet when you read through the scriptures, it's clear that son of Abraham is not a title that we would just give over to Jewish people, but we accept ourselves. Didn't have to read much of Romans and Galatians to realize this. When you read the New Testament, especially Acts and Paul's letters, it becomes clear that the church upholds two core central truths about our relation to Abraham as Christians. On the one hand, they uphold unflinchingly and unrelentingly that you do not need to be Jewish to be saved. You simply don't need to be Jewish to be saved. But at the same time, again, unhesitatingly and unflinchingly, they uphold the fact that you must, absolutely must, be a child of Abraham. You don't have to be Jewish, but you do have to be a child of Abraham. How are both of these things true? Isn't being Jewish the same thing as being a son of Abraham? And how, as those who are not biologically related to Abraham, can we truly be called his sons? Let us read through the text of Romans 4, 9 through 12, and hear the word of our God this morning. Beginning in verse 9, we read this from Paul's letter. Is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised, 
or also for the uncircumcised. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of our God. I want to do something slightly different today. I know that you have a sermon handout there, and I I oftentimes don't do the best of jobs walking you through those points. So what I'm going to tell you is that we're going to get to those points later. I want to walk through the text first and then draw out those implications after we've sort of done a, a brief outline of what's going on in these verses. So if you're like, I don't think he's said the first point yet, and oftentimes he just seems to skip over that, just be patient, and you'll find out that I skipped over it later, but we'll get to that in time. Paul begins this text with a really straightforward question. He says, is this blessing, the blessing that is the righteousness by faith that came to Abraham, the blessing that David says is that those who have committed lawless deeds are forgiven, is the forgiven status of people, is the justified status of people, is that blessing for those who are circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Another way of asking this question is, do you need to be Jewish? Circumcision was, we're going to talk about what it probably meant and and the implications of that, but at the time of Paul and at the time of Jesus, it was clearly a way of identifying Jewish believers. They were set aside because they were circumcised. It showed that they were related to Abraham by birth and thus stood in the line of promise. The question itself, could the line of blessing... Could the blessing that was to come to Abraham actually be given to somebody who is uncircumcised? Would have been almost unthinkable to a Jew in the first century. Of course, they would say. That's a silly question. No. No, because in order to receive the blessing of Abraham, you have to be in the family of Abraham, and there's only one way to do that. Especially if you are a man, you have to take on circumcision. Otherwise, you are outside of the line of blessing. And Paul argues, though, Otherwise, he says then, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. You need to understand the importance of that we there. When Paul says we, he is not talking about himself, we, as in me and my secretary who are writing this letter to you. He's not even talking about we as in those who follow the things that I say. Or we as in Paul and scripture have said this together. But rather, he means all of the church, everyone to whom the faith long since passed down to the saints has been given, we all uphold this. Everyone believes that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. The entire early church agreed with one another that it was faith alone that allowed you to be righted before God, that allowed you to be justified before God. Many people think that this, like, losing circumcision bit was really a ploy of Paul's. Because to be quite honest, that's a huge hurdle. So we've got a book like Galatians. We're going to talk about Galatians a little bit later. 
in which certain members of the Galatian church were actually pulled in toward Judaism by the idea of circumcision because agitators came and they said, in order to be truly part of the people of God, you need to be circumcised. But let's be really clear. In the broader context of the Gentile world, circumcision was abhorrent. Like you weren't pulling in many people by preaching circumcision. You just weren't going to get many people to buy into that. And it's really easy for us to say, well, listen, I mean, this benefits Paul hugely. He is, he is the grand apostle to the Gentiles. So what he's probably doing is just like lowering that bar, right? He goes out onto the mission field and he realizes, man, not many people are getting over that, that circumcision bit. So what I need to do is I need to just ignore it and then find a sort of a pragmatic reason why I can't ignore it. And there's plenty of people back then and there's plenty of people even today that think that's basically what Paul is doing. But you need to understand that we bit is incredibly important because the first person to argue this way in all of the scripture was Peter, not Paul. It was Peter who was given the, the vision of the sheet in Acts 10. It was Peter who was driven to Cornelius. It was Peter who watched the Spirit come upon them. And it was Peter who argued in front of the church that we can't keep the law. Why should the Gentiles be forced to do the same? It wasn't the apostle to the Gentiles, but the apostle to the Jews who first put this forward. So that we is important. He says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Clearly, as you read through Genesis, Genesis 15, where we read, Abraham believed God. He looked up at the stars. God said, hey, that's what your children are going to be like. He looked up at the stars and he said, I, check mark, I, I got you. I believe you. Let's go. Let's do this. He says, I believe you. And God says, that is righteous. As we read that in Genesis 15, God doesn't give over the practice of circumcision to Abraham until Genesis 17. And so Paul says very clearly, well, he was counted righteous by faith without being circumcised. Paul then goes on. It was not after, but before he was circumcised, as we just said. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision is, at the very least, an odd sign, right? So there are tons of people who complain in Scripture about the things that God is doing. You have Moses who goes before, he's, he's in front of a bush that's burning, right? It's burning, but it's not being consumed. The bush has already talked to the man. And so he takes off his sandals. This is clearly a weird situation. And God says, hey, I'm going to have you lead my people out. And the first things that come rolling out of that man's mouth are, well, you know, I got this old issue in Egypt, and I don't really want to go back, and I can't talk all that well, and they don't know who I am, and, and it's just complaint or, or excuse for why he's not doing anything. We've got Elijah, who, who has this wonderful confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and then immediately we find him hiding in a cave, complaining to the Lord that he is the only faithful person in all of Israel. You've got Jonah complaining to the Lord that, man, you withered that plant that was giving me shade. If there was any place in Scripture where we would expect somebody to complain, it is a very old Abraham saying, seriously, can't we do this another way? Like, hats, right? Like, hats are really, we, we identify different teams in baseball by hats. Let's do hats. Maybe a different, different shirts for the Jews. Maybe that would work. Or, you know, we'll cut weird designs into our beards. Like, something. 
But he goes on with it. And the question I think that comes to me is, what, how is this a sign or a seal of the righteousness he had by faith? Why that sign? It's not even a public sign. Why that sign? My guess, and honestly this is just a guess, is that it serves as a sign of what Abraham believed in. Remember, Abraham's complaint in Genesis 15 is really clear. You've promised me all these things, riches and blessings, nations and kings. You've promised me land, but and all of the things that you've given to me, absolutely none of it is meaningful if I don't have an heir. There's Eleazar of Damascus, but I don't have an heir. So all of the promises are sort of summed up in the idea that God is going to give Abraham an heir. He and Sarah had been barren for years. But he was going to have a child while, through miraculous means, by the intervention of God and the promise, nevertheless, through very normal means of procreation. The instrument that he would have to use trying to watch my words carefully, the instrument that he would have to use in order to fulfill that promise was the very thing that he might believe, I am fulfilling the promise myself. And so God gives him a sign so that he can never possibly use that instrument without recognizing that it is the Lord who is fulfilling all of the promises. You don't get to fulfill any of it. And you might think that this is your work. You might think that you are the one who is doing this. But I am the one who is bringing it about. I am the one who is filling the womb of Sarah with a child. I am the one who will bring about the promises of God. It was a seal of the righteousness because Abraham didn't believe that he could do it. Abraham believed that God could do it. And every, every Israelite after that had that same reminder placed in front of them. The provision of offspring comes from the Lord. Paul says, well, it's clear why God wanted to do it this way. The purpose of him allowing circumcision to come after faith and righteousness was so that Abraham might be the father of both those who are uncircumcised and believe in the word and those who are circumcised but still believe. And it's interesting because now you have removed from being a son of Abraham any genealogical, not geological, I don't know how you're related to somebody geologically, but genealogical relationship to Abraham. Even those who are circumcised and genealogically related to him, biologically related to him, he says, they're not sons unless they believe. And the ones who do believe, even if they're not related to him, are still his sons. Now, you might find some of that interesting. You might look at this text and say, okay, that's great, but honestly... I've read these things, and we can go to Galatians and read Galatians where this is kind of blown up and say, I, I don't know what the implications are for us today. Why does this matter? Why, why spend time talking about circumcision and not circumcision? Because honestly, in the early church, it was a big deal. People were being lured into Judaism because of things like this. I've heard a lot of deconversion stories in the church. I don't think I've heard one where somebody was like, yeah, you know, I was really convinced by circumcision to go back and be a Jew. I, if anybody leaves the faith, typically it's to become some sort of Eastern monk or monastic life of, of Tibetan voodoo or something. You know, they're agnostic or atheist, whatever it is that they are. I don't know that I've heard many leave the faith to become Jews. So why 
spend time on this. Well, I want to give you three implications from this text that we would do well to pay attention to. First, we would do well to pay attention to our interpretation. To our interpretation. Paul is making a very specific kind of argument here that he makes in other places. We are temporal creatures. We are, we are bound by time. When I was a child, the two slowest months in the year were July and December. Because at the end of July, I had a birthday in the beginning of August, and I wanted that month to get over with so I could get my presents. And the same thing in December. Christmas comes at the end of December, and I wanted that month to get over with, and I could never make them go fast enough. And now I can never make them go slow enough. Like, we have no control over time. It proceeds at its own pace. We cannot slow it down. We cannot bypass it. We can't go backwards. It is a slow and steady shove that pushes us ever forward. We are bound by it. But God is not this way. He's not bound by time. He doesn't have to think temporally. He knows the beginning from the end, not because he looks and sees a chain of events going from the beginning to the end, but if we can even talk this way, because he sees everything as one solitary moment all at the same time. Our language kind of breaks down as to how to even talk about God understanding us, being somebody who is completely outside of time. Now, the reason why we talk like that is because we, as temporal things, often see things that happen sequentially. This happens, and then this happens, and we realize that they're not always related causally. So just because this happens and this happens doesn't mean that this caused this. And we become accustomed to thinking through things that way. Wade Boggs was a famous third baseman who played for Boston and played for New York. Man was a first ballot Hall of Famer. He had over 3,000 hits in his career. Famously, ate a chicken before every game. And I'm concerned that you might have misheard me. I think what you might have misheard me in a Ron Swanson sort of way is that he ate chicken before every game. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the man ate a whole chicken before every baseball game. Because at one point in time in his career, he ate a whole chicken and had a good game. And he said, let's do this. And so every day, he would order a whole chicken, and he would eat a whole chicken before the game. That is somebody who looks at this happening and this happening and says, they must be linked. And we look at it, and we're like, that's crazy, man. That is crazy. This has nothing to do with this. If anything, eating a whole chicken probably held the man back, right? We look at those, and we're like, those two things aren't related. And if we're not careful, we can read through Scripture and say, okay, well, this happened here in Genesis 15, and this happened here in Genesis 17. I don't know that they're related. What's the big importance about faith being granted as righteousness in Genesis 15? And then in Genesis 17, God giving circumcision. When we read through that, we can easily just say, well, yes, he was justified back there, but clearly God also wanted him to be circumcised. But Paul does not read Scripture that way. He simply doesn't. He looks at that and he says, no, God intended that pause. God intended Abraham to look up at the stars and say, I believe, and look at him and say, that is righteousness. And only later talk to him about circumcision. Paul argues like this in other places. He talks about the promise in the law, the promise that was given to Abraham, unilaterally given to him by God. He says, well, the law comes 430 years later. How in the world is that supposed to abrogate or change the promise that he's already made? Because it comes after so many years, it can't possibly do that. We need to pay attention to details like this when we read. 
They're not bugs in the system. They're not just oddities that found their way into our Bibles and don't mean much. They're part of the system. They're part of the very, the very functions that God has revealed himself to us in. This time, at least in some measure, he reveals to us the primacy or the centrality of faith in Genesis, not by screaming at us, now pay attention because I'm going to justify Abraham by faith and then later I'm going to make him circumcised. That's not what he does. He actually does tell us this loudly in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, it's there solely because God expects us to pay attention to the details. Pay attention to the details, people. Pay attention to these little oddities. Our God has revealed all of this. Every detail makes importance. He didn't have to reveal anything to us. And an infinite God with infinite control over our very finite existence revealed very particularly the things that he gave to us. So read carefully. Interpret well. Pay attention to our interpretation. Secondly, pay attention to our identity. One probably wants Paul to reckon something more with what he says here. After all, if you were to go back and read Genesis 17, especially verses 9 through 14, where that rite of circumcision is given to Abraham, it is not a light way that he gives it to Abraham. He says very clearly, every single man who is associated with you has to be circumcised. If they're not circumcised, they're not a part of you, and they ought to be cast out. This is to be something that you do throughout all of your generations, and every offspring is to be taken up with this. We might want to look at Paul and be like, man, you've got to spend more than four verses brushing this off. Good news. You have an entire book where Paul brushes it off, and that's found in the book of Galatians. He spends time dealing with what it means to be a follower of the promise and a child of the promise and not a child of works, a child of the flesh. At the very bottom of all of this is identity. It's how the people of God conceive of themselves as the people of God. Circumcision was not just a reminder of God's promise, but it was an identifying feature of God's people. The question before us is the same kind of question, although circumcision might not be the the fulcrum on which it turns, but it's the same kind of question. Are we primarily linked by faith in Jesus Christ to one another, and ultimately to God. Is that what makes us a people together? Is that what makes us God's people collectively? Or by that faith and something else? Or just by something else? What is it that makes us Christians, not circumcised, by faith the people of God, Some of the earliest Jews thought that faith in Christ was indeed necessary, but so was circumcision. That is, you must be related to God and to one another both by faith and by a culture or a sign. This, Paul, in the most strong language that he can muster, rejects. Look, he says in Galatians 5, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, faith cannot be your primary identity and yet still think that you're related to God and to one another by some other means. Paul says, I testify to you again that every man who accepts circumcision 
is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul uses incredibly strong language. He's going to talk later about you have fallen away from Christ. You are severed from Christ. You're cut off from him. You've fallen away from grace. Paul's language was strong because he realized that pinning anything else besides faith, especially something that is linked to work and doing and performance, was a denial of the centrality of faith. You can't be united to God and Christ by faith and something else because then you're not actually united to him by faith. You're united to him by that something else. Faith in Jesus, if that is how we are justified, cannot be diluted with anything else. This includes circumcision. If we must become Jewish, then we are not primarily related to one another through faith, but through some separate custom and right. And Paul is not the only one who rejects this. Jesus himself gives hints in his ministry that this is going to be the case, that those sort of family ties that we feel so strongly cannot possibly be the strongest ties that we have anymore. In Luke 12, verse 51, Jesus says this, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He says, those family ties I have come to sever because faith in Christ must sever them. They can't be the closest things that you have anymore. Faith is central to who you are and who is part of your family. This is exactly what Peter as laid out before him by Paul in Galatians 2. Peter, formerly eating with the Gentiles, is pulling back because he's afraid of this circumcision group, these agitators that have come. And Paul confronts them to his face, and Barnabas as well. Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, to Cephas, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you are by nature Jewish, but you have given that up. You're not Jew and you're not Gentile. You're a Christian, Peter. How can you possibly make the Gentiles become Jewish? Friends, if you've honestly and truly believed in Christ, what possible cultural connections, identifiers, or or items of belonging to some group or collection of people could possibly mean as much as faith in Christ? Our faith must remain primary. This means we must define it rightly. That's why when we had a baptism last week, we asked four questions about who God is and about what their faith was like. Do you renounce the devil? Do you reject the powers of the world? Do you repent of your sins? Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Do you believe in God the Son, Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God? who died to take the wrath for your sins and was raised for your justification? Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who spoke through the apostles and the prophets the word of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and the comforter of the saints? We ask those questions because those questions are central to our faith. We don't ask a bunch of other questions. We don't say, so what is your take on eschatology? We, we don't ask them how they interpret Isaiah chapter 7. We ask central questions because our faith is central. 
we can always make too much out of our distinctives. We can make too much out of the doctrines that surround the gospel, but don't make up the gospel. We are, if you wanted to define it really clearly, kind of a Reformed Baptist church. We believe in the doctrines of grace or in Calvinism or however you want to put it. We, we uphold those things. We don't let it bleed through in every sermon. By the time we get over to Romans chapter 9, I guarantee you I will let it all fly. But we believe in those things. But we would be wrong to think that those things are the gospel. They're not. Our Methodist brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, who believe the gospel even if they don't have a solid foundation for why. And we would look at them and say, yeah, that's, that's not exactly great, but okay, you believe the gospel. It's the same reason why we can look at our Presbyterian and Anglican brothers and sisters and say, y'all don't, don't understand anything about baptism, but you're a brother and sister in Christ who upholds those who do rightly the faith of Jesus Christ. In all, you must be very careful how you present yourself and how you think of yourself and others. Is a Christian brother or sister one who likes and believes the secondary things that you like and believe? Or is it one who holds the primary things of faith? Do you find yourself more closely connected to those who agree with you on mere worldly affections? Do you feel like you are closer to them? The same people who like the sports that you like the same people who like the books that you like, same people who like the movies you like or the music you like, or the most insidious of them all, like the politics that you like. Do you feel closer and more at home with an atheist who backs your political strategy even over those who would faithfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord who died for their sins and was raised for their justification? Do you find that you question the faith of those who are different than you for no other reason than that they vote differently than you? And for what? I mean, they're important. They're not circumcision important. And Paul is easily shuffing circumcision off to the side and saying, if it even comes close to denying the centrality of faith, you must get rid of it. I warn you of these things because there are many who seek to do this kind of thing. They call heretical. They call divisive. They call people who are dangerous. Those who rightly uphold the faith of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who died to save them from their sins as a vicarious substitute, who simply think that the world ought to look politically different than they do. Such pressures are dangerous. They make us lose sight of the fact that being politically conservative and being theologically conservative are not the same thing. They are absolutely not the same thing. Many Christians can hold what we might call liberal ideas on the police, on immigration, on economics, on taxation, on foreign policy, and what the public good is, and still be rigidly conservative theologically, and still ought to be upheld and cherished as brothers and sisters in Christ. Much before people who agree with us on all of those issues 
and yet would deny Jesus Christ to our face. If you find that you fall into this, the fact that such people seem more foreign to you, the fact that there are people who might be liberal politically, at least in your view, liberal politically, the fact that they seem more foreign to you than a pundit or a politician who would deny Jesus Christ says much about where you find your identity. And it's dangerous. You are playing with fire, friend, and as a pastor, I want to warn you, you are close and possibly could end up getting burned. Watch your faith and watch how you identify yourself. Do you identify yourself with the stream of people who for ages now, since the very foundation of the church in the blood and the death of Jesus Christ our Lord have confessed him rightly as their God and Savior, dying for them and being raised for their justification, do you stand with them and identify with them or simply with those who vote like you want them to vote? One of those is building on a rock. The other, simply on sinking sand. Third, we should pay attention to our inheritance. To our inheritance. You're going to have to bear with me a little bit on this one. I promise we will get around to the point. When we talk about the Trinity, we automatically talk about an order of persons. We talk about a first person of the Trinity, a second person of the Trinity, and a third person of the Trinity. We do not mean anything about ranking those people, right? It's not like Jesus is number two in the Trinity, but number one in our hearts. That's not what we're getting at when we say there's an order to it. It's simply an order. It doesn't have any meaning of power, worth, or wealth, or anything like that. It's just an order, first, second, third. Typically, the Father is the first person of the Trinity, the Son is the second, and the Spirit is the third. The question is, what do we mean when we say this? What does it mean to talk about the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit? Most of you probably haven't thought about it before, but generally speaking, there's two ways to talk about the Trinity. We can talk about the Trinity as it is in itself, outside of anything that it's done for us. And I'm using the word it there. I realize that, but Trinity is a neuter word in in English, so deal with it. Uh, I'm not saying anything about the gender of our God. So, the Trinity in itself, before the foundation of the world, what does it look like? What does God look like outside of any interaction with creation? We can talk about that. We Sometimes theologians will call that ad intra, talking about the, the Trinity as it is in itself. Or we can talk about the Trinity ad extra, that is, how it relates to us, how God relates to us. And for a lot of us, I think that when we talk about the Son, we typically think about it as how God relates to us, because after all, the Son is Jesus. And so we call him the Son of God. You might think, well, that's because he was the one who was sent, that that was the person of the Trinity who was sent to take on flesh and become the Son of Man, the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And you can think that that father-son relationship exists because of the coming of the, the second person of the Trinity to the earth and taking on flesh. After all, When we talk about father and son from the very beginning, there's a host of questions that we want to ask about how father and son relate to one another. How can he be a son to the father if he's uncreated? That's not how fatherhood works for us. Fatherhood is is chronological as well. My son is 29 years younger than me. 
He's never going to be older than me. He's never going to be the same age as me. It doesn't work like that for us. And what's more, it's clear that there's also this level of authority between the two of us that's never going to be kind of eclipsed. Scripture tells him to honor me, just as it tells me to honor my father. It never tells me to honor my son. It never tells me to obey my son. So when we start talking about father and son within the Trinity, we can, we can try, I think, to escape those problems by saying, oh, it's just how God has revealed himself. It's only because the son or the second person of the Trinity has taken on flesh that we call him the son. But the interesting bit is Christians theologians have always rejected that. In the words of Athanasius, there was never a time when the son was not. The son has always been the son. And the father has always been the father. We say that the Father has no generation or source, but the Son is generated. He's not created. He's not born, but he is generated eternally and necessarily from the Father. The Spirit is not the daughter, interestingly. The Spirit is not the Son, the younger Son, or the second Son. The Spirit is the Spirit, breathed out by both the Father and the Son. It's interesting because these are the ways we talk as, as simply the way in which we talk about them being different persons. The Son isn't the Father because He comes from the Father, and He is the Son. The Father is the Father because He's the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit because He's the Spirit. They're, they're not interchangeable. The fatherhood of God in Himself and the sonship of God in Himself is unique, and it must be clearly defined, and that's how we define it. The Son is the Son because He comes from the Father. He is God of God. He is light of light. Begotten, not created, made, or born. So we, we have taken the time to, to talk about this Father and Son relationship, but to clearly define how we're talking about Father and Son. Because it's not like normal Father and Son stuff. Now, it's a small thing, but notice what happens to Abraham here. Abraham has a fatherhood that is merely human. He begets sons just like everyone else begets sons. He goes into his wife, Sarah or Hagar or Keturah, and he fathers sons. Yet, in God's mysterious fulfillment of the promise, he becomes the father of many nations, not through human means, not through the normal means of procreation, not by biologically producing children. And even his biological children are rejected. And instead, by faith, he becomes the father of many nations, father of people that he never humanly fathered. And all those fatherly things that we talked about are not applied to Abraham anymore. In fact, the way we talk about fatherhood with Abraham sounds a lot more like how we talk about fatherhood with God. And that's the point. Abraham is being presented to us like God the Father here. Not in that he has produced us in a merely worldly fashion like any of our other fathers, but the fact that he is a father to us because we do exactly what he did. Which when you read through John is precisely the way Jesus talks about himself as the son. I am the son because I know who the father is, I do everything the father does, and I follow precisely in his footsteps. The reason why we talk about this as our inheritance is because this is precisely what happens to us. Not that we become fathers in the way Abraham is a father, 
but we become sons in the way that Jesus is a son. Through faith in the work of Christ, Abraham is made like the Father, and we, through those same means, through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, are made sons like Jesus. Realize the import of that stuff. Realize the import of this kind of inheritance. Go back to Psalm 84 and listen to how David talks about being simply around the tabernacle. Psalm 84, famous passage, he says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He says, as a doorkeeper, I can't go in. I can't see the face of God. I will have to be outside in the wind and the rain and the heat. I'll have to, to be subject to all of the, the whims of the weather and all of the ups and downs of the climate. I would rather be outside and be near to God than to dwell comfortably in tents of wickedness and realize that that is precisely what God could have done for us. Saving us, he could have just made us lowly servants. Not consigning us to hell, but neither making us full recipients of the entirety of the blessing. But that's not what God did. God didn't leave us on the doorpost God didn't leave us on the outside looking in. But rather, he not only saves us from hell, but lavishes on us the fullness of the inheritance he set aside for his own son. That son who faithfully and fully hands that very inheritance over to us. We are not those who have to sit on the porch, but can enter into the tabernacle and see the fullness of the face and the glory of God. And in doing so, begin to take on that glory. When Paul talks about our glorification, he's not talking about some sort of separate glorification. He means standing in the presence of God, we become more and more like God, and we become more and more like his glory. We never get there. His essence is always holy, different, and separate than us. He is holy, holy, holy. But we move in that direction. We become more and more like the Son, Jesus Christ. You are not spared death simply to become like peasant workers in a better kingdom. You were spared hell to become kings and queens. Abraham was made a father like God, bringing forth children without fathering them by human means. And we are made sons like Christ. Honor that gift. Live like Jesus Christ lived. Work to see in you and in us the very glory of Jesus Christ. Love one another. Honor one another. Pray for one another. Put up with one another. Be a good Samaritan to the people who are around you. Going an extra mile, whether you think they deserve it or not. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Take on the glory of Christ that it might be seen in us by the world. The most wicked, the most evil, the most despised, and the most wretched have the exact same promise given to them that the best of us might have. No matter how lowly, how sad, how wicked, no matter how high and honored and glorious you might be in this world, there is only faith in Jesus Christ that gives you everything.
You have nothing to add to it. You have nothing to provide God. But he lavishes all of it upon you as sinful as you are because he is rich in grace and in kindness. Let us arise as we will sing and go in faith to Jesus who gives us everything that we could desire. Let us pray. What a great promise we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we have no room but to boast in him, yet he gives us all. We have nothing to offer him, yet he offers us all. We have no good to show for ourselves, yet he offers us all. If all we long for is the good of this world, if this Jesus is good for us in this life only, what a pitiful people we must be. But even in losing everything in this world, we know that we have an inheritance, glorious and perfect, awaiting us in him. We can lose our world. We can lose our goods. We can lose our power. We can lose our honor. But we lose nothing of value. For Christ himself has all the good we need. Ten thousand charms indeed. It is a blessing, Father, to be known by you through him. May we see his glory today through your word and in our lives. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen.